0: Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT GPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution, lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash workshop.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligeris for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. And today I have one of our my most favorite guests, one of my favorite people just to talk about product with, because I think both his experience, his perspective, and his passion is sort of a uh, it's like catchy, right? You get all excited talking to him. So today we have Dan Corbin, uh, who is also one of our instructors. He's got a long history, both as uh, he started out in development, then he became a product leader uh, and now he's an instructor for us. And it's just always a genuine pleasure to have you, Dan.
0: I love, this is my favorite thing to do is talk product manager with you, Rebecca and so Always love coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah. So now that we've fanned over each other, today we're going to talk about uh, uh, a topic that I think it matters so much, right? And it's not it's not something that people, you know, put in the job description or necessarily always overtly talk about. Um, but I think it's something that that we should as, as leaders and, and team leaders and as organizations and setting up things for success is the idea of psychological safety and how mm-hmm. important that is for success, for innovation, for uh, making sure that you get the most out of individuals and, and the experience is the best and just all kinds of things. So I'm excited to dive in, Dan.
0: It's a topic I'm incredibly passionate about. And, um, and it's one of the things that it's a concept and uh, a point that we weave in through all of our classes at Pragmatic. We, we specifically dive deep into it in our build class. But it's something that, you know, with every lesson that we teach, we try to incorporate, hey, we you, this is only possible if teams feel that psychological safety. And, you know, w- we always are showing different ways to build effective teams. But this really is the number one way to build an effective and productive team.
1: And I think it's it's critical for product teams because, like, we mm-hmm. can't succeed without every Out every other department as well right like we we as much as we can feel like we can throw it on our back and carry everything forward it's not right it's not a game of one it's a game of many and making all of that go through is so key to what we do so let's start with
0: for those playing at home uh
1: a definition of what you mean by psychological
0: safety yeah so psychological safety is just that concept that everybody on the team feels confident that no one is going to judge them no one's going to look down on them if they admit a mistake, if they ask a question, or if they offer an up idea. So it's that just that willingness just to be the authentic self, to put yourself out there and not worry that the others on the team are going to look down on you and not having to feel that kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you, we have to self, like, uh, self-censor like self yourself because mm-hmm. when you do that, you limit your what you're contributing to the team and then if everybody is kind of doing that, obviously you're going to be very limited as a group.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've probably all been in those those you know meetings. It's like a brainstorming session, and it's mostly crickets, right? Yeah. Because nobody. Yeah. And those are the worst, right? I mean, a good brainstorming session, a good discussion is one of the most invigorating things, right? Yes. But when you're in there and it's just like, who's got an idea? And it's just like,
0: ah, ah, right. So- it's awful. But you're exactly right. Like when you have that constructive debate and the creativity mm-hmm. is flowing and everybody is kind of sharing and building off of what other people are suggesting, it is. It really is. It is the most energetic, like energizing and invigorating experience you can have.
1: Absolutely. All right. So we all go. Yes, it's important. But uh, if it was easy, you know, we wouldn't be talking about it in <laughs> in great depth today. Um. So how? Like, let's talk a little bit about why. Well, we've talked about what it is. I think Mm -hmm. we understand why it's so important. Mm -hmm. But but it's not just like, let's think of it as psychological safety. I think you can break it down into more explicit kind of sets or or
0: pieces. Yes. Yes. Yep. And it's one of these things that um, it really is a large umbrella. And it encompasses a number of different things that we can kind of dive in and talk about. I think the most important thing, though, is for organizations, if they really want to tap into the potential of their teams, they have to make psychological safety an explicit goal. And it's something that they need to continuously work on. And there was, there's a lot of different frameworks and a lot of different approaches that talk about psychological safety. safety. But <clears throat> the one that I really have liked the best is it's a book by uh, two women, uh, Caroline Helbig and Minette Norman. And they came up with the Psychological Safety Playbook. And within it, they outlined the five steps to psychological safety. So when I was reading this book and comparing it to uh, to other frameworks, this was the one that really resonated most with me because as I was going through and, and reading it, I was able to kind of go back and visualize the 25 plus years that I had mm. working with different tech teams. And so I think that this really is a great playbook. So maybe we can kind of go through those five steps and talk about how you can set up psychological safety and then utilize these steps to make sure you retain that safety.
1: I think that's great. And if you can sprinkle some of those stories that as you reflected back on, you're like, oh, here's an example where I saw we did this really well. And sometimes, hey, this is where I blew that because we've all done that.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Excellent. All right, let's start. Well, the first step that they recommend is just to communicate courageously. And what do they mean by communicate courageously? It isn't like come out and just start telling your most embarrassing <laughs> secrets. That's not. But if you want to tell your most embarrassing thing ever right now on the podcast, please go ahead. <laughs> I shall. I tell. will not be volunteering that. <laughs> but what they mean by this is just being fully present in the conversation and also showing your curiosity, not mm-hmm. just like too often. Um, we we really aren't. Uh, listening, and then being honest with with our uh, our, our responses. So when you're uh, uh, communicating courageously, what that means is you're being an honest broker and that you're showing a little bit of vulnerability. And this is something that I think, I like that this is the first step because Mm -hmm. this is something that we talk about in our classes about if you are a product person, you have to be an honest broker. You have to be seen as a truth teller and someone who is going to uh, be forthright, because product people very rarely, they don't really, they're not the boss of a lot of people, but you just talked about how you have to, as a product person, coordinate with so many other people. Mm-hmm. Most people don't, very few of them, if any, are going to report to you. So you need to show that you have credibility, that you understand, that you're, you understand their perspective, that you're driving towards a larger shared goal. So that, that sort of ability to communicate, communicate courageously and be an honest broker is table stakes for psychological safety.
1: And when you say honest broker, is that like a, a level of transparency or that at least uh, people when they hear you speak, whether they like what you're saying or not, they know it is your truth, right? Yes. Is that, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: You can't just tell each audience what they want to hear. <laughs> no. Everything has to be, there's yeah. a need to be a consistency. and. Mm-hmm. That can be really hard. That means you're going to have to have some hard conversations with uh, individuals. Maybe it's a stakeholder who really wants you to prioritize what they want. But when you have prioritized based on the overall strategy, their needs were deprioritized. Or it's working with someone on your team that isn't living up to their potential uh, or isn't contributing to the team in a way that is positive. So having those what there's a great book called Crucial Conversations. Mm -hmm. No, those sort of honest, forthright, sometimes a little bit raw conversations, but you you're coming from a place where you're looking to help that person and to be honest so that, you know, together you can accomplish something greater.
1: Yeah. No, I think a couple of things that are, that are really key there. One is the consistency, like the telling the same view and story to everybody, right? You can deliver it differently uh, and in the language of that audience, but it's going to come back if you didn't make that consistent. And the other thing I would say, like, this is about telling the truth. It is not about, you know, like, I don't mean to be rude, but, and then insert rude thing, right? Like, that's not Uh, what we're talking about. It doesn't like throw away your filters and your, your common decency in Mm -hmm. here, but it is delivering those truthfully, kindly, right? Is the thing you're going to do? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Your think aspects. Uh, I think is a really important piece to to that.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, what is step two? So step two is really mastering the art of mm. listening. And that means being focused, uh, being present, focusing on the conversation, not having that tendency that a lot of us have, I'm guilty of this as well, of where you're just kind of waiting to be able to talk and to kind yep. of get your, really, if you want to be heard, you first have to listen. Mm. So you need to listen intently, ask questions, ask for clarifications, ask to be corrected if when you're clarifying, if something isn't uh, right, and just showing a curiosity about what that person is sharing. When you do that, you're much more likely to have that sort of, be reciprocated back. That is going to foster some really good discussions. Um, so it's really just about, if you want, if you want to be heard, you have to listen first.
1: So it's too, uh, I was talking to Paul Young, another one of our instructors, and we talk frequently about like what makes a good product manager and what are the traits that might be sort of innate to someone who's just entering that you look for. And the one, one of the ones he always goes to is curiosity.
0: Yes. You will be a
1: good product manager or product when you are curious. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is, this can be a big strength. Uh, but to your point too, like you have to fully listen. And I yeah. remember one mentor saying, when someone gives you an idea, your role is not to prove it wrong, but to find out why it's good. Yes. doesn't mean like that's what you're going to do. But so often you're like, oh no, that's a bad idea. We can move on to the next one. But but it's like, well, there's something in there that might be good. There's something they're thinking no. about. Explore that fully. And the other thing about that, like if you're like, well, "No, no, Rebecca, it's a really dumb idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Often in the exploration, they also see some of what might be the holes. They start to pivot. It becomes collaborative mm-hmm. and, and it's no longer an us versus them. They feel very much
0: a we and we did that together. Exactly. And it is very tempting because people come up with bad ideas in me. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's tempting just to be like, that's ridiculous because of ABC. But I would, I would challenge you to say like, I will, even if it's just, even the worst ideas, there's 10% in there that you could build off of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's going to drive the discussion forward. But if you immediately just shut it down, that is going to, you know, and you don't separate from where you're just kind of ideating before you really evaluate. Because one of the things we talk about in our design class is that sometimes a terrible idea can be the seed of something Mm -hmm. truly novel. So to your point, really sussing that out, driving the conversation, figuring out what is that 10% that we want to build off of, That, you know, is an important part of curiosity and really mastering that art of listening.
1: It also often tells me what I've not done a good job of telling them, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I know it's bad because I have all this information. I've talked to all of these customers and I've been in the market and they come in and their perspective. And again, often it's, there's gems in there, but also it goes, okay, like where, what is it that I think I know that they don't, that they need to understand that it's not a weapon for me to use against them, that I have this knowledge it's a reminder that my job is to broker that knowledge and share it internally.
0: Yes. Yes. That's why it's so important when you're listening to actually go and c- clarify. And and so that, again, it's it's all the, um, the fundamentals of a really constructive debate and constructive discussion.
1: So step one, I'm going to speak open. I'm going to speak honestly. I'm going to be consistent and transparent. Step two is... Yes, you will talk that way, but more importantly, you will listen. Everybody knows the one mouth, two ears, right? Uh, so you're going to listen and you're going to listen fully, not just to get to the next spot where you can talk. So what is step three?
0: Step three is managing your reactions. Oh, I the
1: worst <laughs> poker face, Dan. <laughs> this is sometimes a problem. My face does things I am not ready to actually say yet.
0: <laughs> I, I, you know, so I've seen people that don't, that this is not an issue for them. But this, you know, over the course of my career, this has been a problem. Like uh, I have, I'm generally a laid back, happy-go-lucky guy, mm-hmm. but I'm also very passionate about things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wouldn't realize it. Maybe this isn't the hell to die on, Dan. Uh, so I, you know, some of my responses weren't very constructive. Mm-hmm. So you have to notice if you are getting defensive and say like, oh, I can recognize, label those emotions. And if you kind of like externalize them, like, oh, I see I'm getting defensive there. You need to stop and say, all right, well, what stories am I telling myself? Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that you're going back, you're assuming the uh, positive intent, and you're realizing mm-hmm. that your perspective, you're not going to have the full perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have biases. You're going to have your own specific viewpoints on things. You're not going to have all the data. It's very like, unlikely that you're going to have all of the information for every single discussion. So know, notice when you're, getting, uh, when you're getting defensive. And then really when you're being challenged, actually show appreciation. And you can do that by having some constructive responses mm-hmm. by saying, you know what, I appreciate that you're speaking up and tell me more about your viewpoint. And again, this ties into you know, the previous step where you master the art of listening. But I think it's really important because sometimes discussions can get a little heated. And once the kind of that that temperature starts to go up, mm-hmm. then that starts the psychological safety starts to evaporate out of the room. So you don't want, especially if you're the leader and you are being challenged, it's a, an a, incredible opportunity for you to show appreciation, for you to really listen and to not overreact. And that is going to keep the discussion moving forward.
1: I think that's great to have a, you know, it, it it can be, it sounds maybe a little triter, like it's not genuine, but when you have set responses like that ready in your head. It makes it easier for you to go, okay, the first thing I need to do is say this, that thank you for speaking up. It also gives you a moment to then Mm -hmm. try to get your emotions, if you have them, or your defensiveness under control. and also just totally sets a different space for the audience, right? I mean, or for the rest of the room. It it goes from, okay, this one person was brave enough to say something like, ooh, let's see what happens when this guy says it, to, oh, okay, she she really means that she wants to hear from everyone. Yeah. And it can really open up the number of people who might say something and how they bring it up.
0: Yeah. I remember specifically when I went from a company where there was not psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I started my first day at my new, at the new company. And I was brought in to run this uh, startup that they had just acquired. So and it, 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 they were still running as a separate company under the larger umbrella of the, the uh the uh, larger company, but it still maintained its own identity. And the first day, uh, the 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 chief operating officer flew down, met us in the Austin office, uh, had an like an all hands and uh, you know uh, an AMA. Ask me anything. Mm-hmm. I was just shocked at how much mm-hmm. the uh, everyone was challenging the chief operating officer and some of the the things they were challenging them on was like, why do we need Dan? And I was like, oh, (laughs) I am not wrong for this company. This is not not good. What I loved was not only did the individual uh, contributors and everyone at that company to ask the chief operating officer, why do we do it? Why are you making us do this and that? And he was very forthright. He said, well, look, like this is what we've, tried to do. We've tried to put out the new version of the API because we need something that's scalable, are reliable. It kind of talked about the issues. It said we've tried it your way. We did this and he kind of recounted some of the steps mm-hmm. that they tried. That didn't work. So, you know, the definition of what is it? Uh, the definition of uh, insanity. insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We're not going to do that. Dan is now in charge. He is going to be uh, organizing the teams, determining what, how we're going to work. Uh, and it's going to mean that you're going to follow the agile principles that he is uh, going to set up. And that you know that's the way we're working from now on. And what I really was, again, surprised was how forthright the executive was, but that the team also appreciated that. It was a decide and commit moment. He said, "Like this is the way it is. If you don't like it, you know, you know I don't know what to tell you. But this is how what we're going to try next. And mm-hmm. you know, if it doesn't work, we'll try something else." So I loved that, for, that. Was the very first day of uh, my you know my new my, my new job, and I knew from you know the you know from day one that we were going to have psychological safety. We were going to have honest and forthright discussions, and the team was bought in. They mm-hmm. wanted to succeed. They didn't, they weren't necessarily, you know, um, totally bought in on this Dan guy, but they were at least willing to give me a try. And in the end, we did have, we had great success. It was still one of my favorite experiences I've ever had in my career.
1: I think that's also important to remember too. If someone is challenging you, it's because they care, right? If you say, we're going to do this and they have questions and they're like, I've thought about this. It's not because they don't care or they're not loyal or they're you know, uninvested. It, it actually is a sign of someone quite invested yes. uh, and passionate about what they do, that they have questions for that. And I think that's important to remember too, that like, hey, this person is is someone who's really thinking through and is really uh, sort of dedicated. Yep. You let, I think, into the fourth one there when you talked about, hey, if this doesn't work, then we mm-hmm. will try something else. And I think this fourth one that you talk about is really, really important.
0: This one, this is the one that I absolutely love. So step four uh, in the psychological safety playbook again, I plugged that book because I really think they've done a great job of framing uh, this topic but step four is embracing failure and risk and one of the things I've tried with all of my product teams is to really normalize failure things Ooh. are not gonna go perfectly you know we have a tendency at the beginning of a, a like a kickoff we're like all right this is the problem we're gonna go solve and here are our milestones and we're gonna we're gonna crush it we have a tendency to be overly optimistic, we're not thinking about all the ways that things failure could, you know, uh, descend upon the, this project or initiative. So, really, normalizing for it, failure, uh, embracing that learning uh, mentality, and uh, it's key for a successful team. So that means you have to admit your mistakes, and when you you make a mistake, but you learn from it, you actually celebrate that. Be like, great, you know what? All right, we didn't see this coming. Or we hadn't accounted for this ahead of time, but we know we're not going to make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. And you actually take the steps to show that you weave that into like how you're going to operate going forward. So that's sort of like not being afraid to admit mistakes, to call out mistakes and then say, all right, this is what happened. How do we avoid this from happening in the future? We're not saying like, no, whose fault this is. Really, it's about how do we take this and learn from it?
1: So I'm going to give a hint for anyone who ever wants to work mm-hmm. for me in the future. One of my biggest things that, that if you work for me is to admit your mistakes because yep. I'm I'm fine with that. If you admit mm-hmm. it, you're like, here's what I did. And it went wrong like this. And I'm like, great, let's move on. Let's talk about what we're going to do next. For me personally, and I'm not saying this is the right behavior. If you don't, I don't feel like we can. It, it's much harder for us to get past it. It's much harder for me to be like, I am confident we know what happened and we've taken the time to to reflect on it and respond. It's just a really big thing. And it instantly deflates the room, right? Like all that pressure that was building up, like in a good way deflate, right? All the pressure and the tension, it just goes, and it's the same thing. Like If I make a mistake, I do try the same way to say to my team, like, hey, I did this wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Here's, you know, it just takes all that pressure, all that tension that's building because people are on opposite sides of something. And it... is out of the room. And then everyone's like, well, it's all right. We all make mistakes, right? Like you instantly see, instead of the tension of people sort of like being repelled by this, this problem to everybody coming in and figuring out how we can fix it and how we can embrace and elevate whoever's feeling responsible for the mistake. It's really just one person who did it, but right. right. Yeah, it's huge.
0: And this is why I like this, this framing in uh, this form, this, uh, framework, because the steps really build upon each other. And step one was communicating courageously and showing vulnerability. And yep. that ties into this fourth step where you're embracing failure and admitting your mistakes. So one way that I did this as a leader was I, and I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Dorbin, uh, Rebecca, but Dan Dorbin is my it's, idiotic alter ego.
1: I was going to say, it sounds like your alter ego because it's so close. <laughs> it is,
0: yes. So whenever I would do, do something that was completely idiotic, which, you know, <laughs> not uncommon, you know, I would admit that to, in front of the team. Just be like, that's on me. That, I completely dropped the ball on that. Uh, and we, we would joke about, oh, Dan, you know, blame it on Dan Dorbin. And so even we got to the, the uh, weekly meetings with all of our product managers. And when I was leading those, we would have a moment where, like, anyone had any Dor- Dorbin moments this week? And we would talk about dumb things that we did. And then how, what we learned from it and how we kind of recovered from it. So again, it's part of that vulnerability. And oh, if you nice. model the behavior that you expect you, uh, people reporting to you, you're, go- you're much more likely to actually get that from them.
1: And also it clears the space for those, right? You're not wondering if it's going to come up later. You just get them done and out of the way. And we all, we all have Dorbin moments. And now i will yeah. ever think of that as a Dorbin. Oh God, I pulled such a Dorbin. You won't so, believe what I did. I
0: know, I know this is a, <laughs> a, a you know audio medium, but I'm showing Rebecca my mug right now. I have a uh, mug; and it's actually has the word nice. on it. I love that. And I do a <laughs> me that I make plenty of. And my wife gave this to me as a present. <laughs> mind, like you do a lot of ridiculous things around the house. Dan. Drink
1: from the humble cup. It's <laughs>
0: House. I love exactly. it. The humble cup. I love it.
1: I also think the failure to peace. And we talk about this like sometimes again this sort of like a uh, like a catchphrase, but you know you really it is fail like innovation comes from failure. Yep. And yep. if we are afraid to fail, we are almost by definition not taking a big enough risk right. to really succeed. Yes. No, we're not talking yes. dumb risks, right? But I think that 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 people in figuring out how to actually instill that right. Yeah. Uh, And not just use it as like a, you know, a poster on the wall that you're like, you say that, but you don't mean it, (laughs) right?
0: I think is is, is really key. And so if I can build off that, so that idea of being able to take risks and to really Mm -hmm. drive, because again, if you don't take any risks, you're really never going to truly innovate. So one of the things that you can do to take smart risks and to drive innovation and to embrace failure is to do uh, an exercise called the premortem. And it's a way to normalize failure with team. Because what you do is before you take on a big project, you you picture going to the end of that project. Say you're anticipating it's going to take a full quarter to do. And you say, like, let's jump to the end of the quarter. Let's look backwards to today and think about all of the things. Let's assume that this project went horribly wrong. Complete and utter, you know, just disaster. Let's list all of the ways that they can go wrong. So you have a brainstorming session of Doom. And I've seen this. I've done this with so many different teams. It's actually a fun exercise, and there's there's no finger pointing. It isn't like, oh well, Rebecca probably is going to mess this up. No, it's like, <laughs> it's not. There's no finger pointing. It is a a very safe environment to call out any potential failures without actually, you know, spec- you know, you're never pointing fingers. Then you kind of group those failures. You kind of do a little affinity mapping and say, like, you know, here's the two to top two or three top things that might go wrong. Then you determine, all right, well, what is the impact of that mm-hmm. happen What is the probability? And then you can use a very simple kind of stoplight chart. Anything that's in the red zone with high impact and high probability, you need to start mitigating that immediately. Anything that's kind of in the middle zone, well, maybe you have a contingency plan. And then anything that's in the green zone, you know, we call that the YOLO zone. Be like, you know what? It's unlikely or it's going to have very minimal impact. We're not going to worry about it. Mm -hmm. by doing that exercise, you're accepting that failure is going to happen. And you're saying, are are we taking appropriate risks? So I've seen that exercise really work with teams. And if you don't have psychological safety, that sort of exercise of doing a brainstorming session of doom without any, anyone, Mm -hmm. you know, you're never pointing fingers. It feels like
1: finger pointing then, even if you don't say their names. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then, so it's just a good way to you know, embrace and normalize failure and to build up that psychological safety.
1: So I have to be honest, I had never done a pre-mortem until I talked to you about this concept. I remember it came up probably a little over a year ago, right? And it also came up with another of our instructors, Amy Graham. And then I tried it and I was like, man, what a, like a game changer, right? First of all, it's just good project management to think about risk, right? Everybody knows in your your little box on your plan is always Mm -hmm. a risk box. Uh, But getting the whole team to think about it it also changed. Sort of the ownership of the risks, right? When you talk about those risks up front and you start to, to to talk about them and 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 grade them, it makes sort of the whole team feel a little bit more accountable and responsible and open yeah. as they see signals that might, you know, yeah, say danger is coming. Uh, it also allowed people to occasionally in those conversations, someone would see something as a risk that felt. Very small, right? When you actually measured it out, you're like, you know what? That's possible. But what's the worst case that happens if that happens? And it allowed yeah. them to let go of some of those uh, those barriers that maybe kept them from thinking wider and differently. So it was a it was a game changer, and I will forever be grateful that you kind of talked through that concept with me. And I, I absolutely recommend that people just try it with one project, and I think they'll see the bonding experience, the openness of it, how it sets mm-hmm. the tone for the same piece, and also helps you identify and mitigate risk. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's
1: huge.
0: So that's the step four is a really big one. And then the final, the fifth step in the framework is really designing inclusive rituals. We all have different ways of communicating and, you know, you have introverts and extroverts and some people prefer to write out their thoughts. Some people want time to think through their thoughts. So, One thing that I found helpful with the teams was I would ask the product managers to make sure that they have an inclusion facilitator, somebody who is monitoring the discussion, making sure that everyone has a chance to speak, that people aren't being interrupted uh, and that, um, you know, kind of also monitoring speaking times so that you're getting that diversity of, of opinion. And then even kind of fostering and kind of stoking the fire of that discussion. Say like, that's great. I love that. Who can give another perspective? Or who wants to just, you know, let's, let's, uh, who can play devil's advocate and maybe kind of present an opposing view? Getting that, that discussion going. And when maybe you get people who, uh, and this is very not uncommon, where you have people who are just a little reticent to share when they do share and offer something up, even if it's just a sentence or two, that's, that's interesting. Tell us more about that, encouraging them, rewarding them for sharing mm-hmm. their thoughts and uh, recognizing and say, that's great. I really appreciate you sharing that. That's excellent. We hadn't thought about that that specific point because they have a lot of great contributions, but yeah. sometimes there's a few dominant voices that make it hard to get a word in edgewise.
1: That, I love that idea of the inclusion facilitator. Have you done that? Is it generally the, is it the, the, the the highest titled person in the room? Is it just, does it change, right? Do you, like, what are some of the ways you've seen, I could see doing it all different ways. I'd be curious as to what you'd seen work.
0: I usually would uh, recommend, I didn't specifically go to a specific title or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's really about who is, who has the skills to be a good facilitator. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate at one company, I had hired a student of mine because I just recognized that he had excellent communication skills. And even though he was an associate product manager, he he, I brought him along to a lot of like big like meetings with leaders. And because he had a um, a, he was certified in a Strength Finder, you know, facilitator. I just said, all your job is to keep the is to keep the discussion going and to keep it driving in a in a positive direction. So you're going to be the inclusion facilitator. And, um, it just worked great. So he, that was a mm, real, that's nice. That was his superpower. And that immediately he went from, uh, associate PM to PM senior PM very quickly because those incredible communication skills. Yeah.
1: And it, I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think as it could be difficult depending on the, the stakes of the meeting and the members of the meeting to both be the leader of the meeting and making sure Everyone is participating, right? Like, yep. It can yep. be very easy, depending on if it's a if it's a sort of an internal team meeting and there's already some good pieces. But but having someone else, even if it's just someone else that you think of as your right hand person, like keeping eyes on it, and yes. when they say, "Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if you know Peter. Do you have something about this?" It yep. helps you go, "Oh, okay. Yep, it's a nice trigger and reminder through." For
0: yeah. Sure. Yep. So other things that you could do is you know implement a no interruptions rule now. For some teams, that's sort of like so uh, everyone's kind of like, you know, it, it's just like a mall of you know discussions. Every every team's gonna have their own different style, yeah. but it's important that every voice is heard. So maybe you implement that no interruptions, or maybe interruptions are fine, but no one is allowed to speak twice until somebody at least speaks once. Or maybe if people do prefer a little bit of time to think about it, or they wanna like submit things in writing, maybe you can put up a mural board of you know, here are the topics mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to jot in your thing. So think about the different ways that people like to, uh, to, how they prefer to communicate and embrace and use tools that allow them to share in a way that is most comfortable for them.
1: I think this is one of uh, the most interesting, rewarding, and challenging aspects of being a manager is, um and and I may have shared this anecdote of my own personal life before, but I come from a long family of brainstormers. Like you just throw us in a room and we're like topic and we're like, Oh, exciting. And we interrupt, but we interrupt to build. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. yes. And mm-hmm. that's very much how we interrupt. And so it doesn't, it didn't feel like interruption in my head. It felt like a, Oh yes. You know, we're improvising. Uh, yes. And so it was very and like, that's like, it's one of my favorite parts of working and you know, you I get so excited. Uh, and then I learned, Uh, more than once I've learned this lesson in my career, people who work for me who are just not comfortable in the brainstorming perspective. They Mm -hmm. really, like others you could put in a room and be like, surprise, the topic is X. And they'd be like, X, X is awesome. Others, you know, you definitely needed to, um, to give them the topic in advance and give them space to prepare. And maybe to your point, they needed to be able to write. And then I remember that that I was like, okay, so people need more space and time to write. And I was working with someone else and they facilitated a um, a session and it was very Miro board. I'm a huge Miro board fan, but it was all written ideas and all written feedback.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: for some people on the team, it was amazing. And then for those who had more of my background, yeah. it felt half. Yes. It felt half of what I wanted. And so, you know, I worked with him afterwards. He was an amazing facilitator. And we talked about how we could build the both pieces into that, that there—that yeah. there's written and then there's some discussion and then there's a chance to write again because the those two types of people are fed entirely differently.
0: Exactly. Right? Yes. So
1: finding out how everyone is fed and how to build that in so that everybody leaves both feeling heard and feeling inspired happy joy, right? Like they, again, you got your, your working soul fed and you're like, that was great. Uh, I think is, is
0: we've energized and yes.
1: Energize is a great word.
0: So to give you an example of how I've done that with different teams, because I've seen the exact same dynamics, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the pre-mortem, so we'll have a, we'll have a session where it's just heads down, writing quiet. And then we'll have a session where we actually are like, there's lots of like, like discussion and things like that. And people are kind of jumping in Another way to do this is one of the things that's really important to do is to make sure you're tracking the psychological safety. Yeah. So what do we mean by that? I'm very metrics driven. So I actually would have metrics. I would have spreadsheets. I would have charts about like how the team is doing. Part of the way I did that, uh, it had all of my product managers do that by using something called the happiness metric. So what we did is we add whatever particular, usually it was in a retro. because a lot of the teams I was overseeing were agile teams. At the end of the retro, they would ask three questions. How do you feel on a scale of one to five about your role on the team? How do you feel like we're doing as a team? And how do you feel about the company overall? Hmm. So what that did was it gave me a sense of where people were individually, how they felt about the team, and how did they feel about the the company overall? And again, as a product manager, you're always driving that alignment between the overall strategy of what you're trying to accomplish and that day-to-day execution. So once you have those three numbers of one to five, then you follow up with a fourth number saying, what is one thing that we can do over the next sprint to raise those scores? Now you collect that, those first four questions uh, through a survey, and then we put up the results. Now this is an anonymous survey, and then you can show the results and then offer people a chance to kind of talk through it. So that way you're both getting the written and the discussion. And when people would see mm-hmm. what other people needed, be like, oh, I didn't realize right. how like impactful or how frustrating it's been that our deployment pipeline has been broken or that, you know what, you, someone brought up a really good point. We really haven't done anything as a team outside of work in so long. Who wants to go and maybe, we'll, maybe one of the action items coming out of that meeting was to set up something outside of work. But the important thing is that you, capture what is the one or two things that we're gonna do over the next sprint, then make sure that those are acting on. If you start the next retro and say like, here are two action items and here's the progress we made, teams are gonna feel like, you know what, we're moving forward. The worst thing is like where you just go to a retro or a meeting and you're just talking about the same problems over and over. So I would take those things, we would put them into uh, charts and we would show how team happiness would go up and you can, if you overlay velocity and productivity, there was always a correlation. So this is why psychological safety is so important. If people feel they are heard and things are getting better, they're going to have more fun. They're going to enjoy their job. They're going to be more productive.
1: Well, and I think that that's that's great advice. Because I was going to ask you one of the notes I had is like, how do we measure like this? And yeah. I think that's such a simple way of doing it. And I also think your point about when you see what other people need, most of us actually really enjoy feeding other people what they need. Mm -hmm. We just don't know what it is. Right. Uh And we don't maybe like they're so different than ours that we feel like we can't quite see it. So when you see it, I suspect you do have a lot of people who are like, oh, I can do that. I may not be perfect at it, but I can work to deliver that because now I have a better understanding.
0: Yep. And other ways that you can uh, really kind of track the psychological safety of your team. So what you really need to do first is do a psychological safety assessment. Hmm. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of them out there. I provide uh, a template to uh, a lot of our students and things that my former product managers used can to use. Can we link
1: it? Can will you, will you we link it? We absolutely can. I'm and i would, like, great. I know we have that recorded. Dan will provide. The-
0: <laughs> I have templates for the psychological safety, for it. the a psychological safety assessment, for the happiness metric. Um, But with the psychological safety assessment, it's just 10 questions and it's going to allow you to figure out very quickly where the team is doing well and where it needs to improve. Now, I don't recommend giving a psychological safety assessment like every week to your team. (laughs) It would not make me feel very safe. (laughs) Right. So maybe you do it like every six months just to check in. And -hmm. then you have to establish that baseline. Then utilize things like the happiness metric and all of the different tips we've been talking about. One of the other things you can do, and that I highly recommend, is something that we specifically go over in our build class, and that's creating a working agreement. A working agreement, it's just a really, it's a way to codify how the team wants to work. Mm -hmm. How are we going to treat each other? What is our code of conduct? How do we want to work? And, you know, what what is the way that we can, what is our preferred working style? Maybe we're going to have like, everyone is available for meetings between 10 and 4, or You know, we're going to have a rule. If you end up accidentally breaking the deployment pipeline, you have to fix it before, you know, you can do anything else. Whatever it is, it's up to the team to decide. And giving them, walking through, facilitating them through that uh, discussion of a working agreement, having Mm -hmm. them figure out how do we want to communicate? How do we want to treat each other? And then using that as a basis for how you operate. That is in a fabulous way. It's just an outstanding way to uh, set up and uh, grow psychological safety.
1: It's so funny. We I was telling you before we were we were recording that we have an exchange student this year from Spain. Uh, it's our first time with an exchange student. And one of the things that the agency like gives you is a working agreement to fill out with them in the first week. Like Love it. how who's what, how do we eat meals? Right? How much ones are together and who's who's creating what? And you know, where who spends money on what things? Like it it was really simple, but it had and the conversations, they weren't tense, they weren't stressful. But when we outlined it, everybody knew. Right. And at first you're like, we don't need this. You need this. Right. But it really did. And it just set everything up front. And then there's some clear expectations. We talk about this a lot on the show. Like if, if, if we don't have clear expectations, we cannot succeed because we're aiming for different marks. So
0: it's very important working agreements. It is and teams need to periodically, just like you go back and you'll check in and do the psychological assessment again, go back, revisit the uh, working agreement periodically. And your team is going to change. Things are going to turn over, and people are going to bring in new ideas or have different preferences. So again, it's 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 an evolving document. And you know, the, the, I started off by saying like establishing psychological safety needs to be an explicit goal. Mm-hmm. And it isn't like you can just create one, fill out this one form, or do this one exercise. It is something that you need to do continuously, yep. and you're going to have to maybe have, you're going to recognize certain things in meetings and then have to go have a one-on-one with someone. You're like, Hey, I noticed that you're really passionate about this, but in your, in your, uh, eagerness to share, you, you know, drowned out some of people, or you accidentally interrupted, mm-hmm. make sure that you're taking that time to listen. So again, it's going to, uh, require some additional coaching, but if you make this a priority and I it will not be hard to get buy-in from the team. Because if you are in a psychological like safe team, and the way that you are describing <clears throat> the way your family brainstorms and everyone's, it's almost like you're kind of playing off each other. That's so much fun. Mm-hmm. If you're on a psychological safety team, like safe team, I'm, you will look back on that time. You're like, I really love that team. I used to come out of meetings energized. It was so much fun. I could just be my authentic self with them. That's what you're aiming for. Those are, and studies show that those are the most productive, effective, high-performing teams.
1: Nice. All right, I have a, color, a couple other questions. I think I love that sort of five-step uh, way of thinking about it and breaking down what's so important about the uh, about psychological safety and, and how you can start to build it. What do our listeners do if they're not in a leadership role, right? If they yeah. are not the the head of the team, but they're, you know. Just a, a wonderful product manager, an amazing individual contributor, but they yep. want to make a difference at their organization about this.
0: This is something you don't need to be a leader to start driving psychological safety. Again, it's important for somebody to model the behavior. So if you, if you are an individual contributor, I would recommend utilizing all of the different steps. Be, um, don't be afraid to make your own mistakes. Uh, Make sure that you're being, try to be that uh, inclusion facilitator. Mm -hmm. Um, and Make suggestions about, hey, why don't we, let's try a working agreement. You can try, you can implement these things because people are, there's other people, if you don't, if you're not on a team with psychological safety, there's others that are going to be feeling the same way. Mm. And you could say like, hey, you know, one thing, why don't we take this? I would love to know what other people on the team think. Who's up for taking the psychological safety uh, uh, survey? And so if you volunteer, like being a leader, it's hard. We're always looking for someone to kind of help us and delegate. Yeah. yeah. If you want to take on the leadership for this, uh, for your team. It's, it, I think it's going to be embraced. And if it's not, I'll be honest. I think that that might be a sign that, wow, this, this is a place that isn't valuing psychological safety. Is this really where I'm going to be, have the opportunity to really, really grow?
1: And I think for those, uh, uh, also in larger hierarchical organizations, uh, sometimes particularly those who've gone through a big growth spot, right? You're used to getting the safety from your direct boss and then your direct boss, your team grows and now you have your own team. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that you are responsible for that for your own team as well, right? You can't right. always like, so there is, yes, you may not be the, uh, the emperor of products, Right. But there's both. There's a role you can play as an individual contributor. And then there's a place that you play for your team, whether they're direct reports or there's the the team that you work with in your sprints on a regular basis that you sure. really are responsible for and accountable. Yeah.
0: And I will tell you, if you do that, people will recognize like, hey, what's going on with that team over there? They seem like they're really having fun. They seem like they're yes. really pushing it Everyone over Everyone wants
1: to be on that team then. I love yeah. that. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, you know, you may or may not remember like three years ago, something major happened and lots of people started to work remote. Uh, (laughs) but, but how have you seen, uh, how we build psychological safety is different or evolves as teams are remote or hybrid? It,
0: it, it's a challenge. I mean, Mm. I, it's the steps are still the same, but you need to kind of go a little bit extra and you need to kind of make sure that everybody feels included. So one of the things, so during the pandemic, I shifted over and I had been at a large company overseeing all of the backend platform product management. I was overseeing uh, between six and 17. And then I was shifted over and they're like, hey, now that you've got that set up and running, we need you to improve this part of the business. So I was overseeing a bunch of new teams and we were all remote. I'd never met any of them in person. So what we were doing is we implemented a lot of the same best practices that we just covered. but we want one step further because we wanted people to be comfortable with each other. So we started like these fun daily uh, polls and we I, uh, we would have a topic. A lot of it was like food related, things like that. And it just spurred these fun debates and these kind of funny ongoing, you know, inside jokes between these different teams. Mm. So that's sort of figuring out how can we make this fun and let people feel like, hey, we're getting them involved. And they realize like, oh, this is actually something I want to do. I want to kind of share and open up a little bit to your teams. So I think it, 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 you need to be a little bit more conscientious and deliberate about it just to make sure that everybody uh, is being engaged with the team. And what just kind of like giving them a chance to um, be authentic because, it, but, it, you know, and it, it's definitely a challenge, but it, I, I've seen it work really well. Just takes a little bit more effort.
1: I think that that was exactly what I would say about just about every aspect of managing in a remote environment is that you have to be deliberate. It it works. Yeah. It works well. It can be wonderful. It, it's sometimes even way better. You just have to be deliberate as a manager. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a little bit more structure, a little more process and a little more deliberate look at it. But, uh, but it's, it's very doable. All right. My last question, Dan, uh, someone's listening. It's not my second. It's my second to last question. Everybody listening knows what my last question will be. Um, but, as uh, someone's listening and they're like, Dan, Rebecca, I totally believe this. But like, look, my company has a toxic environment, right? Like, how do I, it's broken. It's maybe, it hasn't been safe. You know, it's not toxic, maybe not that far, but it doesn't feel safe. Uh, how do I repair that? Or so do I just give up and move on?
0: I think um, you owe it to yourself and to your team to try to get that reset, to try to recognize, call out, be honest about, Listen, we've struggled with this and this and this. And, you know, when we had to deal with X, Y, and Z, that wasn't fun. But let's do a reset. Let's try to see if we can move forward and let's shake things up a little bit. And then ask people, listen, make sure that people feel heard. Try to implement some of these best practices. And I, you know, I don't want to say that you're being like uh disingenuous, but sometimes that you can recommend people. Um, it's almost like let them kind of come up with the idea, lead them down the path so that they see, like, you know what? Maybe we should, maybe we could put into writing well, how we want to operate as a team. And you know what? Maybe we should do something fun that is just, we're not always just talking about work. Even if it is like one of the things I, one of my teams, uh, I saw a product manager do uh, is they started off Mondays with um, in the stand up, what did you do this weekend? And that just opened up a mm-hmm. little bit of each other to the rest of the team. And they actually got to know these people, people they had never met in person, but they started to hear a little bit about their lives. And again, it started to like be like you know some running jokes and some funny things. Be like, hey, do you remember when I told you about that two weeks again? Well, you're never going to guess what happened this weekend. So that's the type of thing where over time you can start to reset. But I think you would need to acknowledge what was wrong. And that the need to get better and then say, here's some explicit ways that we might want to try. What do you think?
1: Yeah. I love that. All right. Now my actual
0: last question. Yes. Uh,
1: We talked a lot about a lot of different things today. If you were going to get listeners to do two things differently tomorrow, based on what we talked about today, what would it be?
0: If you, I would say if you, I think that the the two things would be to show vulnerability, to model Mm -hmm. that, to, and to admit mistakes. So if you can show where you uh, you are vulnerable, where you admit you don't know everything, where uh, you and then you even actually admit a mistake, that sort of kind of lowers uh, the the barriers for other people to kind of be able to open up themselves That really starts the ball rolling. I think of psychological safety as like an avalanche and first you start with a little pebble then a little bigger rock comes out and then they start to move be that pebble show some vulnerability admit a mistake and you know model that behavior for others then okay. you'll get the that avalanche that'll really kind of unleash all of the psychological safety that's going to make your team truly great
1: all right dan as always i i just i get i get so excited talking to you about the topics and digging in and it's always fun to hear uh, about your experiences and now we all have a new term for when we make a mistake so go out <laughs> and admit your doorbins to the world
0: <laughs> we all we all do a doorbin on occasion
1: right <laughs> all right everyone that does it for today's episode don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product your company and your career